friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Hello and welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm Neil White, joined as always by my brother David White, and we're back. David, we took Labor Day weekend off. It was a nice long weekend, but missed doing the pod, so it feels good to be back. Very good to be back, Neil. So, for those who don't know, the idea behind this podcast is that every week I ask my brother a simple question. Oh brother, when art thou? And that takes us to all sorts of weird and different places in history, places throughout time. So, David, maybe without further ado, let's get to that question. Oh brother, when art thou? Neil, it's August 28th, 1457 and a French army under command of Pierre de Brézé is sacking the town of Sandwich in Kent, England. And 1457, you say, a French army is sacking an English town. What war are we talking about? Well, that's a more complicated question to answer than you would usually expect of a battle. Yeah, usually if you have a battle, you have a war. Well, in this case, we've got two wars. There's the Hundred Years' War, and there's also the War of the Roses, and it's not really clear which one of those two wars this battle belongs to. Maybe both. Okay, wait, I'm confused. There's two wars going on, but you would think the combatants in this battle would be pretty sure of which war they're fighting in, so explain let's take me back and uh explain the history of a little bit of these two wars so we can get a sense of where we are in in history all right so the hundred years war begins roughly in 1337 or so it's more of a historical term for a series of wars than one big war so we can disagree on when it starts but definitely well before the period we're talking about now and it's caused by the claim by initially edward the third king of england to also be king of france and the king of france doesn't like that i can imagine and that causes them to come into conflict leading into a war which then ends up going on for a very long time so let's mostly Fast forward a bit to, say, the 1440s and 50s, more the period we're talking about. Now, at the start of the war, the most famous period of the war, the English are winning. Their army is very good, and it's small, but it frequently gets into major battles with the French where they're very outnumbered and wins against all the odds this plucky little army. And then they sack a bunch of French towns, usually, and take the money back to England, and it's heroic, and everybody in England is very happy with how the war is going at the beginning of the war. Okay, so that's good for England, I guess. Now, what about the War of the Roses? Well, before we get there, one of the causes of the Wars of the Roses is how this changes. As the Hundred Years' War drags on, the British stop winning. Their army's advantages 
start going away as the French learn and get better as soldiers. But their armies still smaller because England at this period is smaller than France. And so as their advantages slip away, their armies start to lose. And back home in England, people aren't happy about this. Yeah, nobody likes losing. No, and especially nobody likes losing a war. And as all the territory they've conquered in France starts to slip away from their grasp, as you can imagine, the English people start to feel like their rulers are failing them, like the king is failing them. So if you're King Henry VI, king of England at this time period, that's not a good thing. Yeah, this whole war started because the king of England thought he was the king of France. Now he's losing not just in France, but support at home as well. Exactly. So he starts trying to find a way to end the war, to negotiate a peace, which makes sense. And if he'd succeeded, maybe we would remember him as a great English king. But unfortunately for him, he doesn't succeed. The French are still bitter about this whole invasion thing. Can't really blame them there. No, you can't. You absolutely can't. But they take several truces that Henry VI offers, but they never agree to a peace. And every time they've strengthened after taking advantage of these truces, they strike again and seize more territory. And Henry's position at home slips even further away. This discontent in England starts to find its expression in one of Henry VI's cousins, Richard, the Duke of York, who, according to himself, has a claim to the throne of England through his mother that's better than Henry's is. Oh boy, these claims to the throne always get so complicated. So this starts another war that goes on concurrently with the Hundred Years' War? Well, almost. There's an interesting period right at the very start here where Richard has this claim to the throne and it's certainly threatening to break into all-out war, but it doesn't quite. The English nobility managed to keep Richard and Henry talking and negotiating and they agree to a settlement where Richard will get to be king when Henry dies. And it seems like they're going to come to an agreement. So even though there's some skirmishes, there's no all-out war. And at the same time, the Hundred Years' War, there's not an official treaty signed yet, but the French seize all of modern-day France except for Calais back from the English. The French are no longer really pressing the Hundred Years' War. So there's sort of this period, this delicate period, where there's not exactly either war going on, but both wars are sort of skirmishing. Okay, sounds like a delicate period. Does Henry VI handle this well? Unfortunately, in 1455, Henry VI has some kind of a mental illness. The chronicles are unfortunately written in the medieval period in 1455 when there weren't a lot of psychologists around to diagnose this 
accurately, but apparently he had some form of breakdown and required a regent to run the country. That seems very clear from the sources that he had some kind of actual problem. Okay, so who becomes the regent? Well, initially, the woman chosen as the regent is his wife, Queen Margaret of Anjou, which is traditionally how the British handle regency if there's a queen available to to reign. But she's unpopular because she's French. He Henry married her as part of one of his efforts to end the Hundred Years' War. And right now, with the Hundred Years' War having been essentially lost, there's a lot of Englishmen who are not happy with the idea of a French woman running England. So Richard, Duke of York, makes his play. He wants to be regent now, and a majority in Parliament supports him, and briefly, he even does become regent. Okay, well, it does seem like natural that this guy who had this deal with the king to become the king when the king died would want the regent's role when the king was mentally incapacitated. Well, yes, but Queen Margaret also has her claim, which is also very natural and in accordance with tradition, and she's quite unhappy with Richard being the regent. So she announces that the king's had a miraculous recovery, he's okay now, and he's going to go back to rule in the country. And as you might imagine... Richard, Duke of York, isn't exactly thrilled to stop being the regent. Right. These guys in power never really want to give it up, do they? No, they never do. And it's in this tense situation where Richard, Duke of York, actually has put down his power in the regency and the king and queen are reigning, but there's a tense, delicate political situation that this French army crosses the channel and sacks the town of Sandwich. Well, it does seem like a good time if you're going to invade, to invade. So maybe that's a point uh, in favor of Pierre de Brézé. It's a great time because, as it happens, the admiral in charge of the English navy protecting the English channel is a guy called Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. And he's a big supporter of his fellow Richard, Richard, Duke of York. Well, David, I guess they say dicks stick together. So he's a big supporter of the Duke of York. And the Queen can't get rid of him because he's from a powerful English noble family. And they would be unhappy if he were just fired. So she tries to cut his budget, essentially, in modern terms, to reduce how much money and ships he has to work with so that if he's secretly planning on, say, sailing to London in support of the Duke of York, he won't be able to do anything. But of course, this sudden reduction of the English Navy in the Channel is super tempting to the French, who are still not quite over the whole Hundred Years' War. And that's where we get Pierre de Brézé crossing the channel. Sounds kind of like cutting off your nose to spite your face. You're reducing your navy budget to ensure your admiral doesn't attack you, but at the same time, in reducing your navy budget means 
your defense isn't as good as it was. Indeed, political scientists call this coup-proofing, weakening your military in order to prevent them from forming a coup d'etat against you, can also weaken your military against the foreign adversaries they're supposed to protect you from. But for Queen Margaret, this raises a whole additional problem, which is that many people in England at the time suspected her of conspiring with the French. She was French. She was from France. And she knew Pierre de Brézé from her time in the French court. He was a well-known French courtier. And a lot of people suspected her of having conspired with him to try and make her enemy, Richard Neville, the admiral, look bad by successfully crossing the channel. It does seem suspicious. I can see on the face of it why people would think that. And that's actually going to get worse very quickly. People are going to suspect this more and more. Interestingly enough, it's, there's no evidence that modern historians have access to that suggests that they actually were conspiring together in 1457. It's just one of those coincidences that happens to be incredibly suspicious. Interesting. Very interesting. But to explain what happens next, I have to go back a little bit and mention something that I sort of skipped over while I was discussing the Hundred Years' War. Which is? In 1440, when the Hundred Years' War was still going strong, the French were already split between two fractions, the Burgundians and the Armagnac, which is a civil war I am mostly going to continue to skip over. But within the Armagnac, the French faction that was going to win the Civil War and then the Hundred Years' War and become the kings of France, the king was Charles VII, and his son, Louis, decided that he wanted to be king even though his father was still alive and formed a rebellion known as Le Praguerie. And Pierre de Brézé was one of Charles Charles VII's major generals, and he helped to put down that uprising very forcefully executing a few of Louis' friends, which made him very popular, as you can imagine, with Charles Seventh, but not with Louis. And as it so happens, in 1461, just a few years after this raid on Sandwich, Charles dies, and Louis succeeds to the throne. Okay, so Pierre de Brézé is going to be in a little trouble when Louis gets to the throne. He is. He's locked up, actually, in Paris. Louis's unhappy, and he arrests him, and it's not exactly clear if he's charged with any crime or what crime he's going to be charged with, but he's definitely under arrest, and he's probably not very happy about that. No, I wouldn't imagine so. so. On the other hand, there's a few developments in those three years I've sort of skipped over in England. And by developments, I mean the Wars of the Roses break out in full force. No more minor skirmishing. This is major battles up and down the breadth of England. So this is an English civil war now. It is. And there's a lot of developments that I'm, again, mostly just going to skip over. Richard, Duke of York, our original claimant to the throne for the Yorkist side, actually dies in 1460 at a battle called the Battle of Wakefield. He's succeeded by his son, Edward IV, who becomes the new Yorkist leader. 
And then Edward IV in 1461 successfully reaches out to Richard Neville, this supporter of his father who we've already mentioned, who has a large army of his own, and successfully throws Margaret of Anjou right out of the country and captures Henry VI and has himself crowned king. And that leaves us with Margaret of Anjou in France looking for allies. Okay, so does she turn to Pierre de Brézé? She does. She goes to King Louis, Louis XI, and asks him to support her in invading invading England to reclaim her throne. And Louis is interested, but he doesn't want to put too many of his assets at risk. And they're discussing it. And somebody, it's not clear who, has the idea they should release Pierre de Brézé, this general who's famous, who's got a, who's fought the English before, and he should take command of this army to support Margaret, with the idea, from Louis' perspective, being if he wins, that's great, and if he doesn't, it's not such a big risk because you're just sending this guy you don't really like. Fair enough. So the first time Louis de Brézé invades England, people think that he's working with Margaret, but they really weren't working together. This time, they actually are working together. They are. They are united as one Lancastrian, as their faction has become known now by this point, one Lancastrian army invading the north of England, crossing over the channel from France. Wow, this is some complicated political plays going on here all around these two wars, uh, multiple claimants to thrones of both countries. Very, very complicated. So how do these two invasions go, David? Well, at least initially things don't go terribly. They land in Yorkshire in the north of England. They start seizing castles to have a base to work from. They seize Bamberg Castle and Alnwick Castle and Dunstanburg Castle, all of which are famous large castles in the north of England. And then the Yorkist army arrives, and it is larger than they had expected, and they have to call up the Lancastrian lords from the south to show up to support them. That's very critical. But before those lords can reach them, in their base in the north of England, the Yorkists cut them off at the Battle of Hexham and defeat them comprehensively. And suddenly, Pierre de Brézé and Queen Margaret are fleeing England once again with this large Yorkist army coming up to capture them. So they take ship, but instead of heading for France, they decide to head for Scotland. And why Scotland? Well, Scotland is a traditional ally of France, and more importantly, a traditional enemy of England. And Queen Margaret has already tried to raise troops in France, and she got some and this general, but clearly not as many as she was hoping for if she can't use them to beat the Yorkists. So it's time to try another country to see if she can pick up an army that is going to conquer England for her. 
Well, you got to admire her persistence. She's got persistence, and the politics are becoming even more complicated because instead of two countries with two ongoing civil wars, we're bringing in a third country. Do they have a civil war as well? Well, Scotland doesn't have any major civil wars going on at the time, but you'll be happy to learn that Edward IV, when he finds out that Queen Margaret is going to try and recruit them, makes an effort to send some agents to the highlands of Scotland to see if anybody's willing to rebel so that then he could use that as political influence to convince the Scots not to support her. But he's unsuccessful. Just in case it wasn't complicated enough already. Just in case, yes. But just to add some adventure and thrills into this political intrigue, as they're sailing for Scotland, their ship sinks. That's not good. Definitely not good. Pierre de Brézé and Queen Margaret are rescued by local fishermen and taken to Edinburgh and go to the Scots court and start making their effort to raise the Scottish army, but the French army and the English supporters that they'd had with them are lost because there's a shipwreck and lots of people die or are scattered and certainly aren't ready to be troops immediately. But luckily the Scottish hate the English enough that they're happy to sign up and invade even without the support of a French army. So in 1463, the Scots invade England with Pierre de Brise and Queen Margaret. Doesn't go very far. For everyone keeping score at home, that's England has attacked England, France has attacked England, and now Scotland has attacked England. Indeed. But the Scots don't really succeed. It all sort of ends, and you might be thinking now that this whole thing is coming to an end. The Civil War is going to just end entirely. It does seem like they've kind of run out of countries to ask for armies. It does, and they mostly have, and Queen Margaret and Pierre de Brézé have to retreat back to France at this point. And then in 1465, when they arrive back in France, Pierre is immediately recruited by Louis, King of France, because the Burgundian Armagnac civil war that I was skipping over before has sort of restarted. The Burgundians aren't claiming to be kings of France anymore, but they've created this organization they call the League of Public Wheel, which is supposed to be fighting for the rights of the nobility against what they call a tyrannical king. So King Louis needs a general to fight for him against them. So Pierre de Brézé marches off to fight the League of Public Wheel because obviously all of this was too simple and there wasn't enough going on. Right, so we're back to a French Civil War for Pierre de Brézé. What happens to Margaret? Well, Margaret continues looking for a chance to get back to England and reconquer her throne and it doesn't look like she's going to succeed until Edward the fourth by now King Edward the fourth of England the Yorkist king decides that he doesn't want to marry the guy or the girl who Richard Neville who we've already mentioned the Earl of Warwick wants him to marry for political reasons and instead he wants to marry this girl that he loves 
and also whose family he wants to use as a counterbalance to Warwick's power because Warwick has been setting himself up as the power behind the throne. Oh, marrying for love. It's uh, such a nice thought in theory, but in this time it didn't happen very much. Right, David? No, and there's a reason for that. Warwick is very angry, so he goes to France, recruits Queen Margaret, and even though they've previously hated each other for decades, they organize themselves into a new force to invade England to restart the Civil War, which they do, leading to the Wars of the Roses getting even more complicated. But by this point, Pierre de Brézé died in 1465, leading the French forces at the Battle of Molléry. And the Wars of the Roses are going to continue on all the way into 1483. And I honestly don't think I want to cover all the twists and turns that they're going to go through. So maybe let's just wrap them up by telling you the guy who eventually wins. Okay, somebody has to eventually win. Who is it, David? It's Henry Tudor, who at up until the late 1470s was so unimportant, I haven't even mentioned him. He was a Welsh nobleman, not even a particularly powerful one, dubious claim to the throne, surprisingly good at political maneuvering, and 1483... He will invade England from France, throw out Richard III, who was Edward IV's heir, and become the King of England, the first of the Tudor dynasty, which will actually rule England, at least for a while, like a normal dynasty. Wow, a twist ending. Twist ending. All right, Dave, there's a lot of political intrigue. There's a lot of twists and turns, people hating each other and then working together and seeming to work together, but not really working together and then ending up working together. It's it's a fascinating plot line here. I do want to go back, though, to where we started at the beginning of all this, which was Pierre de Brézé attacking Sandwich and not even knowing which war that battle was a part of. That's That was the question that start us, started us off. So to get a final answer is kind of tricky. He was attacking for reasons that we would traditionally associate with the Hundred Years' War. He wanted to sack an English town because they'd spent so much time sacking parts of France but he got his opportunity to attack for reasons that we would definitely tie into the Wars of the Roses. The English Navy is weakened because of the political maneuvering tied to the civil war between the Yorkists and the Lancastrians. So maybe it's best to just decide that the battle was a portion of both wars. Okay, it's a bit of a messy conclusion, but that's how it is sometimes with history, I guess. Right, David? Absolutely. And always remember, you could argue that it was a part of neither war and just a crazy one-off expedition by a French general with more ambition than sense. Plenty of those throughout history. Well, thanks for telling us this wild story, David. It's been quite the trip. Always glad to do it, Neil. All right, for our game this week, and we always play a game. 
I think we're going to do our first repeat game here, David. A couple weeks ago, we played a game that I loved, which was called Who Fought It? And the idea was that I told you the names of some generals from a battle, and you had to guess what battle it was. And I had a ton of fun doing this game, so I thought, let's do it again. You up for it? I'm up for it. All right, our first battle, I'm going to tell you the names of the generals and the leaders involved in this battle. You try to guess what battle it is. And uh, just by coincidence, I did not pick any battles from either the War of the Roses or the Hundred Years' War, so you can eliminate those two wars, and uh, we, we know that Pierre de Brézé won't be one of the generals involved in this. Convenient. All right, first battle. Uh, on one side, we had Artapanus. On his side as well, we had Hydernes II. On the other side, we had Demophilus. Any guesses here, David? We've had three now. We've had three. The names sound Greek to me. I'm wondering possibly a period like the Peplonesian Wars, but I can't think of a specific battle with commanders that we've named so far. All right, back on the side with Artapanus and Hydernius II, we had Mardonius. Mardonius, all right. All right, this one should be the giveaway. On Demophilus's side, King Leonidas I. Ah! Does that give it away? Perhaps the Battle of Thermopylae? You're right, it is the Battle of Thermopylae. Of course, Everyone will be familiar with that battle from the uh, popular movie, which was based on a graphic novel, 300. And uh, that is a good movie, so I'd recommend checking it out. It's maybe not historically accurate. Thank you for acknowledging that. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of magic involved there, but but the, the actual battle did happen, and it was the, the battle of Thermopylae, or the, the 300 battle as people probably are familiar with it all right david that one was a bit tricky with some of those ancient names let's jump forward a bit in history here and i got another battle for you this one has a ton of commanders and leaders involved one two three four five six seven eight nine on one side one two three four five six seven eight on the other side so 17 commanders and leaders here i'm not sure uh how long it might take you to get this one you ready all right, this might take a while. On one side, we had Viktor Pavich, Gustavus Yanni, Konstanisu, Dumitrisu, Garibaldi. So those guys are all on one side. On the other side, Chukov, Fatutin, KK Rokovsky. All right. Nikita Khrushchev. Oh, you, you've got a guess. So we're definitely in World War II on the Russian front. And given the mention of Khrushchev, I'm thinking the Battle of Kursk. Oh, it's not the Battle of Kursk. You are correct on the war and the front. Keep in mind, we have 17 leaders and commanders involved in this one, so it was a, a rather long battle on the opposite side from Khrushchev with some of those guys I already mentioned. We had W.F. von Richthofen, Eirik von Manstein, 
back on the the Russian side, we had Andrei Yeryomenko, A.M. Valieski. Any guesses? Oh, oh, man, I am having trouble narrowing this one down. All right, I'll tell you who the surrendering commander was, who actually surrendered and uh, conceded defeat in this battle. It was Friedrich Paulus. Von Paulus of Stalingrad. Yes, you're right. That is the Battle of Stalingrad. Another one that I I believe was made into a a pretty good movie. Again, maybe not 100% historically accurate, but slightly more so than 300. (laughs) (laughs) All right, David, we got one more battle for you here. This one does not have nearly as many commanders and leaders, just four. And I'm going to give you all of the leaders on one side first and then the other side. So on one side, we had George Carl Wichura, Carl von Fassbender, and Ludwig von Falkenhausen. Von Falkenhausen. And on the other side, we had just one commander, Julian Bing. Julian Bing. Ah, perhaps the Battle of Vimy Ridge? Yeah, I had to get a Canadian battle in there, so... That one is famous from World War One, the Battle of Vimy Ridge, really a turning point in Canadian history for all our fans from Canada. Well, that's always a fun game to play, David, so uh, thanks for playing along with me. Had some tricky battles this time. You did. Very fun. I hope everyone was uh, guessing along with us at home and trying to figure out these battles as I was butchering the names of some of these uh, foreign generals. <laughs> Uh, so thanks for listening again to oh brother when art thou if you want to find us online our website is obrother.ca on twitter instagram and facebook our handle is at when art thou and if you want to send us an email oh brother when art thou at outlook.com thanks for listening we'll be back again with another episode next week so make sure you like our pages follow along so that you don't miss anything happening here on oh brother when art thou thanks for joining me david always happy to be here neil and thanks for listening